Father, we want to thank you tonight that you describe yourself to us as a shepherd caring for his sheep. And Lord, just like sheep, there's so much about our lives where we are needy and dependent on you. And we recognize that through every stage of life's journey that you are guiding us, you are protecting us, you are watching over us, you are meeting our needs. And Father, I pray tonight as you speak into our lives, Lord, that we'll have a clarity of understanding. We will begin to know your purposes and mission and way for our lives. I pray that you'd, Lord, that we would actually hear your voice speaking to not only to us collectively, but to each of us as individuals. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name and God's people said, amen. You may be seated. All right, so we're in the last book of the Bible, the one that most people find perplexing and confusing, and we're there right now. And so uh, one of the things that I want to encourage us about this last book, number one, it's called the revelation of Jesus. The, The Greek word is to reveal. And so it's about making Christ known to us. And the first three chapters are actually messages that Jesus is giving to local churches in the first century that have a 21st century application. And that's what we're going to look at tonight. Now, most of us, we're, we're assaulted, you know, in the news media of always some sort of a natural disaster that's occurring somewhere in our world. You know, we think about recently there were earthquakes in Italy. You know, there's flooding in different parts of the world. There's fires Uh, tsunamis, volcanoes, I mean, all these natural disasters that are happening in our world. And, you know, days of great storm are forever etched in the collective memory of those who live through it. How many know that's true? If you survive one of these situations, it it becomes a life-defining moment. You you won't forget this experience whatsoever. And, And actually, they catch us, and sometimes they catch us unaware, but even if we try to prepare for them, you know, they're always more dramatic than we realize. And there's a consequence to them. And it leaves a scar. But also, it calls forth a challenge, not only to persevere, but to begin to rebuild our lives after these situations. You know, I was just thinking about what's happening in Fort McMurray. You know, most of us, we haven't thought a lot about it. I mean, we knew about it. We saw it in the news. We probably know some people that were affected by it. Some people's homes were lost. Uh, by the grace of God, there were no loss of life in the actual fires, which was really a miracle. I've lived in Fort McMurray. There's one road in, one road out. I mean, that was literally a, the grace and mercy of Almighty God to have thousands of people flee such a devastating experience. But, you know, people there are still trying to pick up their lives. They're still trying to rebuild their lives. They've been defined by that crisis in their lives. And so... I'm saying all of that to give us an idea, and I know some of you guys in the, that were in the military, you probably went to disaster sites. You know exactly what I'm talking about, how, how life-defining these experiences are. Well, in 17 AD, there was an earthquake in a city called Philadelphia. Now, we're not talking Pennsylvania here. We're talking Philadelphia in the central part of what we now know today as Turkey. And I don't know if you realize it, but Turkey experiences a lot of earthquakes. Does anybody know that? They really do. And so this community in the western part of Turkey, a city known as Philadelphia, nearby, about 30 miles away, was another city by the name of Sardis. Both of them were deeply impacted by this earthquake in 17 AD. Now last week I spoke about Christ's message to the church at Sardis. And today we're going to look at Christ's message to the church at Philadelphia. Now, the city itself, the initial earthquake, really hit Sardis far more deeply. But the long-lasting effects probably impacted Philadelphia more deeply. And I'll tell you why. If you've ever been in an earthquake, there's something called aftershock and tremors. How many know that? There, you know, it's not just one experience. And then there's later on some more tremors. But, you know, this occurred for the next two to three years. Now, that's really unusual to have aftershocks last that long. And it was so devastating in the city of Philadelphia that only the central pillars of the city remained. And people were so uncertain as to the rebuilding of their community that many of them built temporary homes away from the actual heart of the city. They, they kind of built out on the outside of, outskirts of the community because you know, they were trying to take care of their properties and their fields and their animals. And, uh, but they were afraid to move back in because no sooner would they consider moving back in than there would be another aftershock, another rumble, another problem in that situation. So this is the church that we're going to look at today. I think we need to understand a little bit...
of what's occurring in the people's lives. How many know that when you read something and you don't understand what's going on, we have this almost an antiseptic view of the experience. You know, we're almost like television viewers watching it, but we don't really experience it until we're there. And, you know, people can explain to us what it's like while it's there. But when you're thousands of miles away, you and I are disconnected emotionally from the experience. Yeah, we may feel a bit of empathy, but we really don't have a sense of what's happening here. So this church now at Philadelphia receives this message to Jesus. Now, what is really fascinating to me, when we looked last week at the message to the church at Sardis, Jesus said to them, you guys, you say you're alive, but you're actually dead. Now, I don't know about you, but, you know, a lot of people will say a lot of things about us, and it may or may not be true. But when Jesus says something about us, it's the truth. And uh, sometimes we can be just kidding ourselves. We can think of ourselves more, than, more highly than we ought to. And Jesus does an expose and shows them that they're not exactly what they think they are. And so there was a sense of a nominal confession of belief in the city of Sardis. But now as we move to the church at Philadelphia... This is one of the most beautiful churches in the book of Revelation because Jesus has nothing to correct this church about. How many think that's an amazing statement? That all Jesus wants to do here is commend these believers for the experience that they're walking through. So how many would say, man, wouldn't it be awesome to get to heaven? And Jesus would honestly say to us, you know, not that I don't think he's going to be walking, you know, fault finding. That's not what I'm suggesting. But he could actually look at our lives and say, you know what? Man, am I so proud of you, the way you handled life, the way you walked with me, the way you were faithful. You know, I just want to commend you for everything you did. How many think that would be an amazing thing to have the commendation of Almighty God? I I think that would be amazing. So we're going to look at one of the things that Jesus commends about this church. These are things worth emulating. They're things worth copying in our lives. And uh, so he also, while he's commending them, he's encouraging them to persevere in a time of trial, and, and, the, and he also gives them a promise of future deliverance. So we're going to look at three things that Jesus revealed to that church that he wants to reveal to us here today. And so the first one I want to look at is that Jesus Christ reveals himself as the all-powerful one. Now, you go, why is that important? How many know that when you're struggling, when you're you know, feeling weak. When you feel like, you know, your life is out of control, isn't it nice to know that there's someone greater than yourself that's in control, he's all-powerful, and he can handle anything that's happening in your life? How many think that's pretty important? That is, I, I, I consider that deeply reassuring. And so these words are going to be extremely reassuring to this church. And we pick up the story here uh, in chapter 3 and verse 7. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut. What he shuts, no one can open. Verse 8, I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Now, as I read through the scriptures over the years, I've noticed something very fascinating. God's estimation of life is far different than us. How many know that we're usually impressed with numbers? We're impressed with riches. We're impressed with beauty, right? We're kind of impressed with all the things that we can see around us. But yet God's, you know, what he values sometimes is far different than what humanity values. Anybody figured that out yet? And a lot of times what we value is strength. And yet when I read the scriptures, uh, the thing that I find interesting is God often uses human weaknesses to reveal his glory and his power. You know, I remember years ago when I was in seminary, I'm still there, but I'll finally graduate one day. But uh, years and years ago, when I was working on another degree, I had to do an assignment from the book of Judges describing all of the military hardware the Israelites, you know, brought into overtaking the Canaanites in the book of Joshua. That was a very interesting study. You know what I realized? You know, these people had nothing. They really were not equipped to conquer the land. They were really not equipped... In the, in the book of Joshua and Judges to really, you know, to become victorious in battle. And what you begin to realize, it's because of God's presence and powers, that's why they prevailed. And it, it makes you realize that God works powerfully in spite of human weakness. I remember reading in the book of Second Corinthians, the Apostle Paul was having an experience in his life. 
And he was, you know, really concerned about God delivering him from this experience. As a matter of fact, he defined it as a thorn in the flesh. And there's been a lot of speculation and theological discussion of what was Paul's thorn in the flesh. Some people have said, well, maybe it was a medical problem. Maybe it was dealing with his eyes and all kinds of speculation. Others would argue, no, it's not Paul's medical problem. It's probably the fact that everywhere he went, he was persecuted by people who had a false understanding of the gospel. And that was a thorn in his flesh. Whatever it was, we don't know. We can speculate. But whatever it was... Paul wanted to be free from it. And how many here can say that when you're going through a difficult time in your life, what you really want is deliverance? Anybody here relate to that? You know, please, God, can you get me out of this mess? Anybody feel that way? You know, and maybe you're experiencing that right now in your life and you're saying, God, could you please jettison me out of here? I mean, this is really a drag. You know, I'd really like deliverance. I really don't want to experience this stuff. Well, you're in good company because Paul felt this way and he prayed and he prayed three times and God spoke into his life and he gave him this answer. And it's one that I think is very, very encouraging. He says in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. What does he mean by that? What he's saying is what I'm going to give you to sustain you in this situation is enough for you. I'm not going to take you out of this. I'm not going to deliver you from your thorn in the flesh, Paul. He says, for my, my power is made perfect in weakness. Now, you ever thought about what is he talking about here? What he's basically saying is, Paul, what happens when you are weak, you have to depend on Christ. And that hasn't, how many can say that's been your experience walking through this life, that when you felt the weakest, when you felt incapable, inadequate, you know, frustrated, and you cried out to God, and God, by his grace, sustained you through that experience? Isn't that an amazing thing? That's what he's talking about. My, he says, my power is made perfect in weakness, therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest upon me so that you know people are not looking at us like we're superstars actually you know what they're looking at is christ in us and paul talks about that you know the excellency is christ in us you know i jokingly say we're little clay pots you know our body really is is, you know this our human body is really weak and fragile and you know maybe we can be strong for a season but eventually our bodies begin to weaken and deteriorate that's the truth but what's happening on the inside can grow and get stronger and develop so that when we come to the end of our lives and I've seen it where I've been in a room where someone was dying and you could see that frail little vessel that human body is deteriorating but inside you see this incredible power of God radiating and you know that this person's going to live forever with Jesus and the power of God is resting on this individual. It is a beautiful thing. You're seeing that this, this almost a conundrum, this, this sense of, you know, how can something be so weak and yet so powerful? And yet that is what Paul is talking about. And I think there's nothing more reassuring in our time of weakness to know that God's presence is there, that God's power is there. That God is adequate to handle whatever situation I'm faced with today. That God doesn't always have to deliver me from my difficulty, but that God will be with me in my struggle and that he is more than enough to take me through this experience. And so over the years, I've looked at the people whom God has used and God generally works through broken vessels. And I think the reason that is is because it eliminates our sense of self-sufficiency, our arrogance, our pride, You know, God works through people who have been, you know, broken, and then all of a sudden he can work powerfully through their lives because the people realize it's not themselves, but it's the power of God working through them. So to the church with little strength is given a message of hope and power. I like that. And it's this beautiful picture here. There was tremendous pressure on this church. These people were literally experiencing, I've already explained the external pressures, but they were also experiencing tremendous internal pressures they had been excommunicated many of them had a jewish background and you know the jewish people you know always believed and they were revealed to them that they were god's people you know i've just been studying the book of hosea and we're reading about how god is speaking to the people there and he talks about you are ami my people and then he, later on he says you know but you've you've chosen to reject me and now you are lo ami lo ami means not my people you've made that choice you know it's not that god walks away from us we walk away from god isn't it tragic 
And so here we read that there were people there that were literally rejecting these individuals. But now I want you to see um, the words that Jesus is giving to this church to encourage them. Look at the first expression. These are the words of him who is holy and true. What are we looking at? The revelation of Jesus. So who is this holy one? Well, you know, the holy one is an interesting title in the Old Testament. If you look it up, you know what you're going to find out? That's the name of God. In Isaiah chapter 1, verses 4, I'm just giving you an example of it. It says, they have forsaken the Lord and have spurned the Holy One of Israel. How many know when you're reading that, you're actually reading about they have spurned God? The Holy One is a name for God. They had turned their backs on God, okay? And so Jesus is saying, I'm the Holy One. Jesus is actually saying, I'm Yahweh. I'm, I'm God. Look at what he, you know, if you don't have a, if you don't see that, let's look at another text from the Old Testament found in the Psalms. Psalm 1610 is noted by most people as what they call a messianic psalm. It says, because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your holy one see decay. Now, who is he talking about here? He's talking about Jesus Christ. And we know the story from the New Testament because Peter actually quotes this verse in Acts chapter 2 when he's talking about, you know, the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. He's preaching a sermon to people living in Jerusalem who had just witnessed the crucifixion of Jesus. And Peter now is making a declaration that, you know, a few days ago Jesus came back from the dead. And now, full of the Holy Spirit, they're standing in front of these individuals saying, this is what's happening right now. God raised the Holy One from the grave. And you can't find his body because it's not there. And let me, let me tell you something. If people thought this was a weird idea, they certainly wouldn't have embraced it. And that's that day when Peter was preaching on the day of Pentecost, it says 3,000 were added to the church. People responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ because Peter was preaching that Jesus was the resurrected Messiah. What a powerful thing. But in saying that, He's quoting this text to say it's the Holy One that will not see decay. Who's the Holy One again? That's God. And so God himself became a man and now conquered death so that you and I can actually address the greatest enemy of humanity, which is death itself. And the book of Revelation is actually going to bring us to show us that ultimately all the evil of this world will be overcome by the Lord and of his Christ. Isn't that amazing? That's the message, folks, that we have a revelation of how powerful Jesus really is. Not only here does Jesus reveal himself as the Messiah, but we see that he's the one who holds the key of David. And, oh, let me go back here. It speaks of being genuine, this word true. It speaks of authenticity. Jesus says, I'm the real deal. Because, you know, the Christians who were accepting Christ were being excommunicated in the synagogue. Let's just read this verse. It says, I will make those, verse 9, those who are of the synagogue of Satan. Isn't it interesting? Jesus is saying this. He's calling this synagogue, a synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though he says they are not. Now, they're Jews by race, but as far as God is concerned, it's, it's, they're claiming to be my people, but they're really not. Because they don't recognize me. They have spurned me. They have forsaken me. But are liars. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. In other words, I truly accept you and you are my people. I'm affirming who you are. And then he goes on here to reveal uh, that he is the one who holds the key of David. And, you know, keys speak of something very profound. How many here have ever been locked out of your house or your vehicle? Anybody had that experience yet? You know, how many go, oh, I forgot my key. Or, you know, the key is in the ignition and I'm outside the car and the car is locked. Nobody else has ever had this embarrassing moment. And you don't have a set, another set of keys and you're walking around going, oh, keys are more powerful than we really realize. You know, and you're trying to break into your own house. Has anybody, anybody besides myself done something stupid like this? You know, okay, there's a few of us. Oh, good, I feel, in, I feel somewhat comforted. I'm not the only idiot, you know. <laughs> Sorry, guys. But we kind of do that once in a while because keys are powerful. They give you access, do they not? They actually allow you to enter into things. You know, so it's very profound that we have keys. Keys speak of authority. And now Jesus here is quoting from the book of Isaiah. It's a direct quote from Isaiah chapter 22 and verse 22. He says, 
And in Isaiah, he says, I will place on his shoulder the key to the house of David. And when he opens, no one can shut. And when he shuts, no one can open. In other words, the key really either creates access or it bars people from, you know, being in, you know, experiencing access to something. Now, the question is, what in the world is Isaiah talking about? And so Grant Osborne, who is a New Testament scholar, says, the context of that quote is really the story of King Hezekiah, an Old Testament king of Judah, who is now trading out his steward, his main man in the kingdom. And it says, the Lord demanded that Eliakim replace Shibna as the chief steward of Hezekiah's household and that he be given the key to the house of David. So what's he talking about? He's been given the authority within the palace. He's the one that now has authority and access and he's in the position of being able to do things that he was not able to do before, okay? Now, I'm gonna share a thought with us you say, well, what, what does all of this have to do with um, the book of Revelation? Well, really simply this. These people who had been excommunicated by the synagogue, Jesus says, actually, they're the ones that have access into my kingdom. The believers who have been cast aside, they're the ones who have authority. And think about what Jesus did when he was in Caesarea Philippi. He said to his disciples, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter stood up and said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, you know, flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my father, which is in heaven, you know. And then he goes on to tell Peter, you know, Peter, I'm giving you the keys of the kingdom. Remember that statement? Wasn't that very powerful? I'm giving you the keys. What is he saying? I'm giving you access. You have the ability to open the kingdom of God to people. And so didn't Peter do that when he's preaching on the day of Pentecost? He's got the keys that are opening up the kingdom of God to people. Wasn't that what Peter did in in Acts chapter 10 when he went to Caesarea Caesarea on Maritinus, which is the coastal city where Cornelius, the Roman centurion, who was a Gentile, who had an angel appear to him, said, go send for Peter. And all of a sudden, Peter came and he was preaching to Gentiles. And all of a sudden, the gospel opened up to the Gentiles. Peter has the key of access. But here's what I'm going to say to us. You and I enter into the kingdom of God through what Peter did. What did Peter do? He confessed that Jesus was Lord. That's, that's the doorway into the kingdom of God. As a matter of fact, what we realize is... Uh, well. Well, let me just shift gears here. I'll get to that. I'll get to that point where what happens when we, we, we have access into God's presence. But I'm getting ahead of myself here. Uh, in this context from the book of Revelation, this describes Jesus as the Messiah who controls the entrance to God's kingdom. The Jews had probably excommunicated these believers in Philadelphia from the synagogue, but this declares unequivocally that only Christ... Uh, and not they have that kind of authority. So the house of David is really a shorthanded way of really saying and referring to the kingdom of God, to the city of God, to the temple of God, to the riches of God, to the king. And Jesus Christ is like Eliakim, a steward, the steward of the, of the great king. Actually, he is the great king. And by his death and resurrection, Jesus has opened the door to all the living God is and has. So... They had been excommunicated, cursed, persecuted, and disowned by family and community. Isn't that kind of a sad thing? And you know, how many here in this room, you've actually experienced moments in your life where people thought you were weird, shunned you, you didn't feel like you belonged just because you were a follower of Christ. Anybody have that kind of an experience? Anybody have that? Okay. You know, that's normal, you know, situation. But here in North America, it usually just is more of a social thing, right? But the reality is what happens in other parts of the world becomes far more dramatic. And, I, and as I travel to India, we see far deeper levels of persecution there. And I know working with Dr. Thomas is a beautiful young man. His name is Philip. And when he became a follower of Christ, because he had left his family, you know, like literally when you choose to become a follower of Christ and you leave, you know, a whole social structure, it's very dramatic. Families disown you. Uh, they are shamed by your behavior, you've dishonored them, you're cut off from your family. Uh, It's so traumatic to them that they react in such really profound ways. This young man, his mother cut off his right hand, literally severed his right hand, and threw acid in his face. And so when I, when I visit in India every single year, I run into Philip, he works with Dr. Thomas, and he has scars on his face, and he's missing his right hand. 
I know that he has the scars of Christ in his body. He's one of the most gentle, humble, sweet young men, you know, and he's, he's, no, he's embarrassed by the physical, you know, effect of what happened to him simply because he became a follower of Christ. Can you imagine that kind of a situation? That, that's challenging. It kind of challenges us here in North America because, yes, we've experienced some measure of, you know, maybe persecution, but not to that level. Uh, you know, where, you know, even for him to get married, you know, his family has totally moved away from it. And everything in India is an arranged marriage. He now has to be brought into the community of faith. The Christian family uh, has to take him in and do all the things that his earthly family would do. And so I know that Dr. Thomas and Elizabeth said, you know, Philip, if you ever want to get married, we'll help you with the arrangements. We'll pay for it. They'll take care of him. You know, that's what the church has to do in countries where their families totally reject them. It's actually a lot different than what we experience in our world over here. Let me move on to the second thing that Jesus reveals to us, and that is what he praises us for. What is it that Jesus expects from us? What is it that he's going to affirm in our lives? Here was a church experiencing a difficult time. To be faithful to endure in a difficult time is commended by Christ. So Jesus commends things like endurance, and perseverance. How many see that? He really commends that. As a matter of fact, uh, there's a scripture, and we'll get to it eventually, where it talks about Jesus challenges us to endure. But Jesus knew their deeds, it says. I know your deeds, in verse 8. See, I've placed before you an open door. He saw how their perseverance in keeping his word and not denying his name, even though they had little strength. And earlier, I talked about some of these other churches and other messages, how they had compromised. And so we say, how does that apply to us today? Well, it goes simply like this, that you and I every single day are challenged to compromise our faith. You say, what do you mean, Pastor? You know, we're compromised to fudge, to edge, you know, to embrace the value structures of our culture. You know, and one of the things in North America we don't realize is we're being bombarded every day with advertisement. And everyday advertisement is basically saying that you and I will never be satisfied unless we have this product. And I want to just declare to you right now that's all a lie. We don't need all those products. We've just been told that so long we actually believe it. What's going to make us happy is not things. What's going to make us satisfied is knowing God as our Savior. What's going to make us satisfied is doing the will of God. What's going to make us satisfied is living a missional life. It's actually living with a purpose that transcends this world. And so many of us have been duped by our cultural value system and we've pursued that vision of life to the detriment of what God wants us really to be about. And that's about his business. That's about caring for people around us. So they had remained true even though there was great economic pressure, persecution, and instability. These people were steadfast in their faith in God. Isn't that beautiful? And, you know, that's really a testament, isn't it? So if the Philadelphia church had little strength, so also had the city. And it suffered from earthquakes more than any other city in Asia. So what is this open door that Jesus is talking about? Well, first of all, we know from Scripture that Jesus himself calls himself, I am the door, or I am the gate. So Jesus himself is the way or the access into the presence of God. But that's not the only image that we need to understand about an open door. As a matter of fact, Paul talks about the opportunity to bring this message of hope to others. He uses that as an expression of an open door. So he talks about the opportunity not only to experience the gospel personally, but also to bring the gospel so that other people will experience it. That's what is described as a door. He says at Ephesus, there was a great door for effective work that has opened to me. In other words, I've had the opportunity to bring the gospel to people. Now, how many know that people that we're running into, they're actually resistant to the gospel or they're open to the gospel? How many have actually experienced this? You've noticed that people are either open or resistant, right? And so, you know, when we're talking to people, and I talk to people, I always try to figure out what level of resistance do they have towards the gospel. And I want them to figure out, is this door an opportunity to share the good news about Jesus, right? Because, you know, if, if you're talking to somebody who's highly resistant, they don't want to hear anything, you're just wasting your time. I don't even bother with that person. Because my attitude's real simple. I want to get to the person who's really receptive. And by the way, in a city this large, there are many open hearts to hear this wonderful message of God's transforming love. We just need to pray, God, guide me to those opportunities. You know, at Troas, Paul said, the Lord opened for me a door. 
And then, that's found in 2 Corinthians 2.12. And then he asked the Colossians to pray. And pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mysteries of Christ for which I am in chains. In other words, Paul said, you know what, I'm praying for an opportunity, right, to share this message. Even though by sharing this message, it cost me imprisonment. People felt he was a threat. Isn't that amazing? You know, how many here, you know, people see you as a threat? You know, and that's not a bad thing. We shouldn't be surprised by that. You know, if, if we're really walking with God, we are a threat to Satan's kingdom. Do you guys realize that? And the Bible says the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And so I don't see the church as being in a defensive stance. I see the church as being in an offensive stance. That you and I are bringing this gospel to people. And that we need to do this with boldness and wisdom and love and courage. And we need to stop worrying about what's going to happen to us and how people are going to respond to it. I think we're so hung up with outcomes it keeps us from doing anything. What do you think? I think that's our problem. We're hung up with outcomes. We think that when people reject the message, they're rejecting us. I don't find it that way. I find that they're rejecting Christ, not me. That's what they're rejecting. So here's this archaeologist, and he's talking about this church at Philadelphia. Now, I want to just say something very fascinating about this church. The intention of its founder, the actual beginning of Philadelphia, was to make it a center of the Greco-Asiatic civilization and a means of spreading the Greek language and manners in the eastern parts of Lydia and Phrygia. How many think that's interesting? So they were founded with a mission to Hellenize their region, to actually bring the Greek culture to their area. And you know, it's interesting to me that they must have had some of this missional DNA in their system because when they received the gospel, guess what they did? They took that on as their responsibility to evangelize and bring the culture of Christ to their region. And that's one of the reasons why Jesus is commending this church. They're actually doing this. You know, I want to say this. If, if we ever lose a sense of being missional, if we ever lose a sense that we have a purpose and that our purpose and our mission is to bring the good news to people around the world, then I believe we're really missing the essence of who we are. You know, Max Lucado tells a story. He was on a fishing trip with some of his family members and... Uh, they ended up running into some really nasty weather. They couldn't go out and fish, so they were holed up in this little cabin. And he said it wasn't too long before they were fighting with each other. You know? And he realized, he wrote down something, and he shared it later on. He said, the church, whenever it has a withdrawal mentality, when we're sitting inside our building, and we've lost the purpose that we're called to do, and that's go out and fish, what we end up doing is fighting. And it's amazing how often the church is fighting with itself, fault-finding, blaming, and all those bad behaviors. When, when, when we're engaged in the mission of the church, we don't have time for all of that. We're actually designed not to hang together and just, you know, you know basically, you know, become more uh, mature all the time. Really, part of the maturing process is to get out of our pews, to go into our communities, and to share our dynamic Christ with the people who so desperately need him and who have no idea that God loves them to the degree he does, have no idea that God cares about them and their troubles. And you and I are those emissaries and ambassadors that are coming in the name of Jesus, bringing this glorious news of hope and freedom and love to people's lives. So I want to just tell us today that we want to be missional. We want to be like Philadelphia Church. We want to be like this in Red Deer, and we want to be like this around the world. And so one of the things, one of the things that I have focused in on as a pastor is that I've said we're going to be a missionary sending, a missionary supporting church. And you know, a lot of our income goes to missions because I'm convinced we need to be doing the Father's business and not just be, you know... You know, making ourselves, you know, be, have more than we already have. Well, let me move on to the third thing. And that is simply the promise to encourage us in our time of testing. You know, what sustains us in a time of testing? Isn't that a great question? How many here you can say, I've been tested? Anybody here gone through trials? Anybody here gone through troubles? In this world, you shall have trouble. Jesus made a promise. In the world, you're going to have trouble. 
How many have actually experienced Jesus' promise of troubles? Anybody here have any troubles in their life? Oh, we've all experienced that. My, you know, what Jesus says is true. He says, in the world, you'll have trouble. You'll have tribulation. You'll have problems. So we all have trouble. So let's, let's, let's look at every human being on the planet. We can say every human being is going to experience trouble. All right? And some of it's our own doing, and some of it comes because we're impacted by other people's bad doings. Right? So we're all going to have it. It all comes our way. Now, Jesus assures us that he will be with us in every trouble. And so to the church at Philadelphia, he told them he would vindicate them before their critics and their persecutors. And we know that that's true, that Jesus did vindicate them. And he said, you know, I'm going to make those of the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars. I will make them fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Isn't that a powerful thing? I like what Osborne, um, uh, Grant Osborne says, these Jews claim to be God's people, but since they have rejected his Messiah and persecuted his people, they lie. As Paul said in Romans 2.28 and 2.29, the true Jew is one inwardly of the heart. That's what God is looking at. Are we have the right heart attitude? Do we know God from our hearts? They had patiently endured great trial, and now they are promised to be kept from or through the trial coming upon the whole earth. Chapter 3, verse 10. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently. I want to just stop there and camp on that expression. Since you have kept my command to endure, but we're not enduring patiently, Pastor. We're enduring whiningly. Right? Come on now. We're, you know... We, we, we carry on. It's like, you know, God doesn't care for me. Where are you, God? How long is this going to go on, right? But notice what he says about these guys. They endured patiently. See, we, we have to take a look at how are we handling our difficulty. So, you know, some people have taken this text to mean that, you know, this church will be spared the great tribulation. Well, I want to just keep reminding us, this was written in the first century, and it was written to this particular church. So what's he talking about? Well, throughout their history, Philadelphia experienced great trial. It just did. If you know anything about uh, the history of that part of the world, you know, uh, they were overrun by the Turks. And during the 14th century, this city stood practically alone against the entire Turkish power as a free, self-governing Christian city amidst all of the other peoples around them. Can you imagine that? Is that amazing? Yeah, they just, they really did. Uh, it, they finally succumbed both to the Turks and to the Byzantine Empire. But it took a long time. This is talking centri- uh, hundreds and hundreds of years. And then we notice the promise is conditioned on their perseverance. Look at verse 11. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. So what is Jesus talking about? What crown is he talking about? Well, let me take you to the Olympics. They're ta- he's talking about in those days... In the Olympic Games, you didn't get gold medals, silver medals, and bronze medals. What you got was garlands put on your head. It was a crown. And what he's saying is when you win the race, when you are the victors, you get to wear a crown. And so Jesus is using this analogy from human experience to explain to them that when you and I endure through our trials, what you are doing... I want you to paint this picture in your mind. You are like in the Olympic Games. You are God's champion down there going through all this junk and at the end you're going to get the crown you're the overcomer you're the victor is that an amazing picture you know so i mean you could you can you can try hard to be an olympian in this life you can get the great accolades and the gold medals and you know what but how many say i'd rather have the crown at the end of my life that I had performed well in God's great Olympics called life. I think that's far, more, far greater. The new, then he says, he who overcomes, verse 12, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Now you have to understand, there's something going on here that most of us don't quite understand. But here's what happened. When the city went through that earthquake, if you go to these ancient cities, you were with us, uh, you know, Dale and Angela, to a trip to Israel, and so was um, Deanna. You know, remember those cities, uh, they had those great big pillars where they'd put up in these columns in these cities. Remember that? These pillars actually stood through the earthquake. They didn't collapse. They didn't fall down. That was all that was standing was the pillars. And he said, Christians, when you and I endure, we're like the pillars in our society. We're the ones that are standing at the end of the earthquake. 
We're the ones that are actually, when the dust settles, we're still standing upright. Everybody else has collapsed. They have given way to their fears and their sorrows. But Christians, you and I can actually endure and stand in the midst of those things. It says, never again will he leave it. I will write unto him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I also will write on him my new name. Now, I didn't say this last week because I didn't have time, but I'll say it this week. One of the most important things in the ancient world was a sense of belonging. You belong to a family, but you also belong to a city. Now, in our world, belonging to a city means a lot less because we have nations that we identify with. But in those days, most people didn't identify with nations. They identified with cities. And cities would fight with other cities. And they would actually have your name on a census in every city. And your name was written down and you were part of that city. Isn't that amazing? And listen to what he's saying to these guys. He's using this imagery to say that when you're a child of God, God has written your name in the city of the New Jerusalem. Now, he's giving us this amazing promise. He says, to overcomers, to the people who endure through the difficult times in their life, the people who persevere, this is what happens to you. I like that. So this city that had, you know... uh, No settled structure with buildings that at any moment could be torn apart by further tremors. It must have been tremendously encouraging to know that they were citizens of an eternal city. That even though the earthly city was collapsing, they had a greater city to look forward to. How many know that in the day in which we live, there's a tremendous need to persevere? Does anybody know that? It really is true. And as a matter of fact, Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 24, in verse 13. He says, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. Or the King James says, he who endures to the end will be saved. So let me say it to you this way. Endurance is an important fruit of a genuine relationship with God. Okay? So what am I advocating? I'm advocating that you and I be like the Philadelphians, that you and I would have a persevering, enduring spirit. How many get that? But some of you say, but I feel so weak, Pastor. And here's the good news. Do you think that there's some of us in this room that are stronger than other people? Or is it the fact that some of us in this room have learned to look to God moment by moment, day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, recognizing our own weaknesses and trusting God over and over and over again? You see, that's the real key to the Christian life. It's not so much how great we are, how we've endured. Actually, we're up, we're down. You know, some days we have great faith. Some days we go, where's my faith? You know, I think I forgot it. You know, we're all over the map. But the reality is, it's not so much what we're doing. It's the fact that we're trusting in this God who can keep us and sustain us through all of these things. And so we need to learn how to follow Jesus every single day. That's how endurance and perseverance develops in our lives. Now, a number of years ago, I was going through a very difficult time. You know, I just felt like you know, I wasn't really effective. My ministry was not as fruitful. I felt life was going backwards instead of forwards. Anybody can relate to this? And I was going, God, what are you doing? You know, what's going on in my life? And God was trying to show me, I'm teaching you things. And I'm going, well, what are you trying to teach me, Lord? And, and I, I was realizing he's trying to teach me endurance. He's trying to teach me perseverance. Now, how do you learn that stuff? You only learn it through trial and hardship. Okay, so some of us were going, please deliver me from trial and hardship. And God's going, "Mm, I don't want to do that. I'm trying to teach you this lesson. You know, it's like I was listening to a a sports show, talk show about one of the New England Patriots who just won the Super Bowl. This guy has gone through so many difficulties. He's a young man. Now he's a Super Bowl champion. And and so the guy was interviewing me, said, you know, I, I noticed that you've had a lot of adversity in your life. He says, how do you handle that kind of adversity? And he goes, my mother taught me a great lesson. He goes, well, I like to hear this. And he said, when I was younger, my mother said, you know, life is like three pots of boiling water. And she said, in one you put a carrot, one you put an egg, and one you put coffee. And he said, what happens to the carrot when it's put in boiling water? The boiling water changes the characteristic of the carrot, right? Doesn't it? it? Sure, it softens it, right? And a lot of times we're weakened by our trials. How many of you know that's, that's true? A lot of people are weakened by their trials. He said, then there's other people who are put inside the boiling water like an egg. What happens to the egg? It gets hard. 
And a lot of people are hardened by their trials. And they get angry and frustrated. And they're bitter and upset. And that's what happens. The trials are affecting them in a totally different way. So instead of being broken and weak, now these people are hardened and angry. But he said, you know, in the third pot, you throw coffee beans in there. And what happens to the boiling water is that the, the trial actually is transformed. And she said, my mother said, be a coffee bean. In other words, you know, what we need to do is allow what's happening to us not to, you know, weaken us or, or you know, harden our hearts, but really to bring about a transformation. God wants to change something in our lives. And so... A number of years ago, at this point, I was reading a book by John Piper. He's a pastor in Minneapolis, and he was, wrote a book called The Roots of Endurance. And as I was reading this book, he shares the story of three amazing Christian leaders who had to endure a lot in their life. One of them was John Bunyan. Some of you may know who he is. John Bunyan suffered, you know, being cast into prison for years just because he was preaching the gospel. But one man he talked about was a man by the name of Charles Simeon. Most of us really don't know who Charles Simeon is. He, he lived a long time ago. He pastored a church uh, near Cambridge University in the UK, a church called Trinity. It was a church that a lot of the students would attend. It was kind of a prestigious church. And in that day, just to give you how long ago it was, they had things like, you know, the pews, you would actually purchase them so that you could sit in them. You'd buy them as a family, and they'd have a little gate. I've actually been to a church that had these little gates. Have any ever been to kind of museums and older churches? I always liked this, you know, and they had a little gate, and they would lock the pew, literally. So if you didn't own that pew, you just couldn't go sit in that pew. It was your pew. You paid for it. They locked it, you know? And in that, in that denomination, uh, the, the denomination appointed the pastors. The congregation had no say in it. So they appointed this young guy, fresh out of seminary, to be their pastor. And the congregation didn't like him. They didn't like him because, first of all, he was very evangelical. He'd preached that you had to be born again, saved by the grace of God. And he was challenging them to live a holy life. So they just really didn't like him. So you know what they did? They started locking their pews and not attending church. You know? But how many know that if you're, you know, this guy decided, I'm still going to, I'm called to be here, you know, I'm going to hang in there. And so he kept preaching. And meanwhile, more people started coming. But here they were standing in the aisles, sitting on the floor, sitting on benches, you know, you'd be empty pews and people standing around. It was weird. And this didn't just happen for like a few weeks or a month. This went on for 12 years, you know. And finally, I don't know, something happened. Either these guys decided to sell their pews or they got right with God. I don't know what happened. But eventually the church tamed down and the church was really doing well. And so this pastor stayed in this congregation for 54 years. 54 years. Now, you would think after having the first 12 years be that difficult, you know, you think you never have another problem. But that's not the way it went. In about year 30, so now 18 years of peace, year 30, new problem entered into the church. He's now 53 years old. People are upset with him about who knows what. And they want to get rid of him, you know. And so you think, well, maybe he'd think, maybe now's the time to move on. And he said, you know, uh, after 30 years in one church, uh, Piper writes, an upsurge of opposition is surely a sign to move on. But once again, he endured patiently. And three years later, he wrote in his journal, the peace had come to the church and he had the joy of ministering to a united and affectionate flock. And he remained there for another 21 years. Wow. Now, think about it. What in the world was going on? Well, simply, over those 54 years, he had a lot of undergraduates from Cambridge would come over, and he would serve them tea. started out with six students. He was serving them tea and explaining the life of a minister and what it meant to be a Christian leader. And that thing grew from 6 to 12 to 24 to 70 people. And over the course of 54 years, he trained 1,100 people to go into pastoral chaplaincy and missionary work. 1,100 people. Is that amazing? Now, how many know when you're doing a good work, you're going to have opposition? That's just the way it works, guys. And you know, sometimes when we're, we're living our lives as Christians, we go, where's this opposition coming from? Well, if you're doing a good work, a great work, you're going to have it. That's just the way it works out, you know? Now, how did Simeon endure all of this? Well, he looked to our Lord and Savior, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross and despised the shame. He looked to Jesus, the author and finisher of his faith. What am I saying to you and I this, this evening? I'm saying you and I need to look to Christ. 
That's who's going to help us endure. But let me close with uh, Piper's comments about Simeon. This is the part I wanted to get to. He said, I need this inspiration from another century because I know that I am in a great measure a child of my times. And one of the pervasive marks of our times is emotional fragility. It hangs in the air we breathe. We are easily hurt. We pout and mope easily. We blame easily. We break easily. Our marriages break easily. Our faith breaks easily. Our happiness breaks easily. And our commitment to the church breaks easily. We are easily um, disheartened. And it seems that we have little capacity for surviving and thriving in the face of criticism and opposition. Wow, is that strong? Is that a strong indictment to our culture? Is this kind of what we're like as a culture? What is he basically saying? We're a bunch of wimps. Isn't that what he's saying? Anybody hear that? He's saying this culture's wimpy, you know? I've actually been reading a book by a a lady by the name of Laura Hillenbrand. She wrote a book called Unbroken. Anybody saw the movie Unbroken? None of you? Read the book? Some of you? Okay. Um, She's also the author of Seabiscuit. Anybody know what I'm talking about? The little horse that ran? Okay, you know what she got enamored with? She says, what happened to me is I got totally enamored with the people that grew up in the Great Depression. She says, I started to find something about this generation, what was characteristic. These people went through extreme hardships. But they didn't come out of it broken. They came out of it unbroken. They came out of it with tremendous character. They actually became coffee. Instead of, you know, a hard-boiled egg or a soft carrot. You know what I'm saying? Something happened. That's why she, and she did all kinds of research on both of these guys. And the, the one guy she wrote about, this guy, Louis Zapparini, who was an Olympian miler during the Olympics in 1936. And all that he endured when he went into the military, you know, his plane crashed in the Atlantic, him and one pilot, there was two other guys besides himself that survived the crash. They floated across the, the Pacific Ocean, went 2,000 miles over 47 days with nothing. Something's going on here. But you know what was happening as I'm reading this book? They're showing you that these people began to cry out to God. And in their weakness, they found God's grace. And they found God's strength. And God started doing amazing things in their life. And I could tell you more, but you may want to read the book. I don't want to ruin it for you. But then, you know, Piper goes on and says this. When historians list the character traits of America, and I'll say, let's add Canada, because I think we're in the same boat, in the last third of the 20th century, because this book was published quite a few years ago, and I'll say probably more applies today than then, he said, commitment, constancy, tenacity, endurance, patience, resolve, and perseverance will not be on our list. This is not what we're noted for in this generation, okay? People from the Depression are noted for this, but we're not. Then he says, the list will begin with an all-consuming interest in self-esteem. It will be followed by the subheadings of self-assertiveness, self-enhancement, and self-realization. What's the characteristic word there? Self. You know what I was reading the other day? Jesus said, if you want to follow me, you must deny your self. Pick up your cross and follow me. Totally different message. Are we hearing this in the church today? Are we told, come to Jesus, you'll be the greatest person that ever lived. That's the wrong message. We need to realize what Jesus is saying is, I want to change who you are so that you'll become more like me. And if we think that we're not children of our times, let us simply test ourselves to see how we respond when people reject our ideas, spurn our good efforts, or misconstrue our best intentions. In other words, when you are misunderstood, how do you handle it? We all need help here. We're surrounded by and are part of a society of emotionally fragile quitters. Ouch. Is that powerful? You didn't want to hear this. So what do we do, Pastor? We've got to imitate those who, through faith and patience, inherit, inherited what was promised. So what is, what is the message that I'm trying to get across to us here today? Number one, that we want to be a people that Christ commends. How many say, I want to be that kind of person? Number two, that says, I need to be missional in my lifestyle and my thinking. It's not about me. It's about what I'm going to do for others. And number three, the third point, is I need to learn how to endure and persevere. They that endure to the end are going to be saved. You know, I've been a Christian for 42 years. I am amazed at how many people drop out of the race. And it's not because some of us are better than others. It's simply because we stop trusting Christ. And so I'm going to have a stand this evening, and I'm going to close with an opportunity for us to respond to God, because I think that's important. You know, I believe God has been speaking tonight to our hearts. Some of you are under... Tremendous pressure in your life. You're probably experiencing 
maybe trials and difficulties, maybe you felt misunderstood, you know. But what are, what are you hearing? What is Jesus saying to you tonight? What is he saying to you? Number one, he loves you. He's in your corner. He hasn't left you, hasn't forsaken you. He's allowing you to experience this difficulty. What is it going to produce inside of you? And you and I have a say in that by the way we respond to our trial and difficulty. Isn't that true? And so with every head bowed here tonight, some of you are saying, you know what, Pastor? I know I have little strength. That's okay. Jesus didn't, you know, condemn these guys because they had little strength. He commended them because in their little strength, they trusted him. And I'm going to invite you to come. Some of you here tonight say, you know what? I want to be a commended Christian. I want to... I want to walk with perseverance. I want to walk with endurance. I want to be commended by my Lord and Savior. And I know tonight I need his strength to do that. And I'm going to just invite you to come. If that's you tonight, just come. Just respond to the front. Just come forward. I'm going to pray with us. Come tonight. This is a long race, folks. You know, I want to be an Olympian for Jesus. I want to wear that beautiful garland, that crown on my head, where Jesus looks at me and goes, Paul, thank you. You were steadfast. You endured through all the trials of your life, all those difficult things that came your way. Listen, God knows the trouble you're in. He's allowed the trouble to come to you. But you know what? The question is, how am I going to handle these things? Am I going to let these things define my life and shape me and I just become like a hard-boiled egg or a soft piece of carrot? Or am I going to literally transform as a person and become something other than what I was. I'm going to become more like Jesus. I'm going to become forgiving. You know what? When I was reading the end of this book, there was a questionnaire, and Laura Hildenbrand on this book called Unbroken, you know what she said? The reason why I couldn't resist writing about Louis' story, because when you read it, he was literally beaten every single day for two and a half years in a POW camp. And she said, when I talked to him, there was not one trace of anger or malice inside of him. And she goes, how could you have endured such tremendous deprivation and mental and physical cruelty? He said, I forgave them. I forgave them. How many go, that's the spirit of Jesus. That's the spirit of Jesus. So she wrote about it. Now, I don't think the movie portrays all this, but the book sure brings it out. And I go, yes. Oh, I like this. This inspired me. I said, Lord, I don't even know if I could handle that kind of deprivation. I was reading through the book. My heart was breaking. I'm going, I don't know if I could handle surviving two and a half years of, you know, malnutrition and disease and physical abuse and mental cruelty. You know, I don't know if I could handle this. But when I read Louis' story, I was just so moved by it. I just went, wow. The grace of God can sustain us in every situation. We can persevere through no matter what comes our way. And so let's pray and ask God to help us day by day, moment by moment, week by week. And pretty soon it becomes month by month and then eventually it's year by year until at the very end you could say, I've been walking with God. I've been walking with God for over four decades. And I can testify to each one of you in this room, my God is faithful. He kept me in the darkest times. He's kept me in the times where I have felt, you know, where nobody cared and nobody understood I felt alone. I felt sometimes battling through despair and darkness and wondering if God cared or, you know, what was really happening or would God ever use me again? I've gone through all kinds of emotions, but my God was there through every single moment, every single moment. I was able to walk with him. I'm not saying I was not whining or complaining or questioning or wondering or asking how long or praying for deliverance. I've done all those things. But I want to just declare to you tonight that God's grace is sufficient. His power is made manifest in our weakness. So Lord, I pray tonight for my brothers and my sisters. We are your Olympians on the earth. and We want to run this race, Father. We want to run it well. When we come to the end of our journey on life and we've run this race its fullest course, Lord, we want to hear those words of commendation. We want you to place, Lord, that little crown of victor on our head that we have overcome, that our names are etched in the new Jerusalem, hallelujah, that we're citizens of your city and that we're children by your name. And that's why there's been so much difficulty at times because we are opposing the work of darkness. 
We are standing, Father, advancing your kingdom in a foreign entity, Lord. But we are your people. We are your people. We are your ami, your people. And we thank you for it, oh God, that you have called us and you have loved us and you have set us free, oh God. And you have, Lord, done a work in our lives and you are continuing to do that work in our lives. So help us, Lord, to be strong in you and in your mighty power. And even though in ourselves we may feel weak, oh God, May we see the power of the living Christ powerfully move through our lives and advance your kingdom in Red Deer and around our world, Father. And I just thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.